Chuck Schumer wants to make that point, I'd be glad to hear it. But from an energy perspective, it's just not a legitimate campaign talking point. But again, if he runs with it, great. Like Politically, it's like, we're on the offensive. Shane is like being very defensive here. So that's, we've got the high ground on this issue right now. That was the like, position I used to be in, and it was very uncomfortable. Here's, here's my advice to Democrats. Talk about Iran and campaign in Texas. <laughs> Do those things, and you're going to make me a happy man in November. So, awesome. Democrats blame Trump for soaring gasoline prices. Republicans call Democrats hypocrites. The Pope is meeting with big oil to discuss climate change, while President Trump has ordered a bailout for coal and nuclear power plants. It's just a typical week in the energy world, and we're here to discuss it. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm your host, Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media, and I'm joined by Brandon Hurlbutt, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu, and Shane Skelton, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Hi, guys. Hey, Julia. Hey, Julia. How you doing? I'm good. It has been a busy morning. In a few minutes, we're going to delve into this drama around gasoline prices and how it's been used as a political tool. But first, we have to address some breaking news. So we're recording here on a Friday afternoon, not long after news broke of a leaked memo in which the Trump administration outlined a plan to have the Department of Energy require U.S. grid operators to purchase electricity from struggling coal and nuclear power plants. Uh, This is in an effort to help them avoid shuttering and retiring, which is happening as they face increased competition from natural gas and increasingly competitive renewable energy resources. This has sort of been in the ether for a while. There's been rumblings of some kind of action coming from the president. There have been previous attempts by the Department of Energy to shore up these coal and nuclear power plants that have failed. Under this new memo, which is really the most concrete policy reference we have of of the Trump administration taking action on this, although it's not official, an official memo yet. The DOE is also planning to establish a strategic electric generation reserve in the name of uh, promoting national defense and maximizing domestic energy supplies. This is meant to be a short-term stopgap measure over the next 24 months as they do a larger study, which could then lead to some other policy action. We don't know what that is yet. This memo was circulated ahead of a meeting with the National Security Council, And then later in the day, President Trump ordered Secretary Perry to to take some action and give some policy recommendations to him. So, Brandon, I remember I told you about this because we'd had some rumors that this was coming. And we should note that Jennifer Delohi at uh, Bloomberg was the first to report this. But Julie, you had the tip earlier. I I had a tip. I had a tip. I could not substantiate. But The interesting thing was that the NSC, the National Security Council, got involved. So, Brandon, I wanted to ask you, like, is this normal? Nationalizing a part of the electric grid is totally not normal and could be an absurd abuse of power. What is normal is that the DOE and national, the National Security Council work together on policy. And from my experience, the National Security Council is the least political of all of the entities within the White House. And so I'm, I'd be very surprised if they would be using politics to justify bailing out an uneconomic technology like coal. But if that's the case, this is really dangerous. Yeah, wait, the reason for going to the National Security Council would mostly be, I guess, to validate that this is a national security issue, which I guess is how they framed it. But then ultimately, you know, this has to stand up in the courts, I would imagine. Like, Shane, 
when you saw this news, what did you think about the chances that it would, you know, hold up if indeed this is put in place? We should underscore that this is has not been acted on yet. It's now uh, it's just in memo format. But if it does happen, what would happen in the courts? So I think it's really scary that they did it. And the reason I say that is that on paper, legally, it has, you know, I would say, I guess on paper, legally, it has no chance of holding up. But I think Brandon will agree that when a president claims that there's a national security issue, courts are far more deferential than they would be in a separate policy issue. So when you look at the law, they rely on two different statutes to justify this behavior. One is the Defense Production Act and one is the Federal Power Act. It's clear that both of those statutes provide certain liberties to the Department of Energy. But it's unclear to me uh, from the text of the statute that either one allow this behavior. So what I was really excited about when the memo was leaked is I couldn't find an analysis where this was legally defensible. And I was excited to read theirs. And they didn't. They just didn't do it. They, they made a factual analysis for why they thought this was appropriate. And then they summarized the Federal Power Act, Section 202C, which is what would allow this. And they summarized Section 101 of the Defense Production Act, which is the authority they're relying on there. In no point did they apply the facts to those laws and say, so here's why we get to use those. So, you know, I looked at this as something that, you know, we did in the first year of law school. We just copy and paste a bunch of stuff, but you don't really make sense of it. That's what it seemed like to me. So initially I thought there's no way this can hold up in court. There's just absolutely no way. But presidents are given really, really broad authority when it comes to national security. And if they can convince a court either A, that there is a threat to security or B, that it's not the court's purview to determine whether or not there's a threat to security. It could have more legs than it should on paper. The interesting thing with this document is that they called out cybersecurity a lot more than in other efforts they've had. They, The DOE tried to advance this NOPER, this policy that was put before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and shot down. Um, they've In First Energy, this utility has, has sought protection. Um, the interesting thing is they talk a lot about the resources, coal and nuclear, and how they have fuel on site. This memo references that too, but also talks about cybersecurity as another layer here and how natural gas pipelines could be hacked, basically. And like this fuel on site thing is is so key in countering that. There is some actual cybersecurity that needs to be dealt with, though. So Absolutely. But if they were serious about national security, think about this. You know, when the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, where, you know, Trump abandoned, they had, you know, fuel sources, you know, that could generate power. The problem was the grid was not available to transmit and distribute that power. So having the fuel at, you know, on demand doesn't mean you can still provide electricity if the grid is down. And if you really wanted to service national security purposes, you would move towards microgrids. That's what they're doing in Puerto Rico. You would want a decentralized grid with distributed resources having solar and wind and battery storage so that if one part of the grid goes down, the whole thing doesn't go down. So imagine if President Obama had said, I'm going to use those, you know, laws to use, you know, microgrids, which would actually work for, you know, helping the grid become more reliable. Imagine what the Republicans would be saying if he did that. Yeah, there's a look, there's a lot of legal and policy analysis that could be done for the like entertainment sake and the sake of this show. This is just really shitty politics. Like take take the take the policy out of it. You have a situation where I think that that Cole versus Obama, that worked for Republicans. Obama's doing bad things. He's raising your energy prices. Coal is going to help. And he's hurting coal. This is not that. This is Republicans versus Republicans versus Republicans. And Democrats just get to sit there and laugh because 
we've got a situation where a president is taking on the fossil fuel industry, right? Oil and gas are very, very much against this because gas is a huge source of electric power. He's taking on ratepayers, just every human being who votes, because they're going to have to pay for these inflated costs through their electric bills. Um, and then also, he's trivializing national security. The voting public tends to trust Republicans on national security more than Democrats because Democrats use it as a political weapon and we actually defend it. And so if we start using it as a political tool, and all that means get us into trillion dollar wars that are unnecessary. But you know, I don't know where that trust comes from, but you you are right. In in any sake, like right, if you start if if Republicans are viewed as capitalizing on the term national security to justify irrational policy choices, then voters aren't going to trust us on these issues. So I just think it's I think it's bad policy. I think it's stupid, and I think it's bad policy politics as well. Literally everyone has come out against this, it seems, like grid operators, uh, the American Petroleum Institute, the Heritage Foundation, obviously a ton of clean energy companies and, and industry groups that are saying, hey, resilience, talk about solar plus storage. That's nowhere to be found in this memo. So, uh, you know, again, there's lots more to dissect here. And, and just sure one we'll final point, Julia, like the Trump administration is taking climate change out of national security reports. They're removing that language. And so it seems like they're playing a lot of politics with national security. And I think that's dangerous. It's just the political climate that we're in. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of climate, let's go to the Vatican, where climate change is the topic of discussion between the Pope and some big oil executives. We know now, uh, according to a report from Axios, that senior executives from companies including Exxon, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, and others will be meeting with the Pope to discuss how they can come up with longer-term solutions to both manage the risk of climate change while developing energy resources to serve the growing demand for, for people around the world, including alleviating poverty through energy access. So this is an interesting timing because it comes one year after President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. Brandon, you highlighted this news story for me earlier. What do you make of the Pope holding this meeting on the uh, anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Paris? Here's where we are. When the Pope, the largest oil and gas companies, some of the largest investors like BlackRock, and every country in the world but the U.S. is working on climate together, it just shows how isolated President Trump is on this. And it's it's just crazy that we're the only country. Like North Korea is working on this. The Pope is doing this. Like it, I, it just blows my mind how isolated the president is on this. Yeah. I mean, for anyone who's seen the Emoji movie, this is like meh, right? Like Emoji movie? Yeah, like meh. What you know? The, the whole character movie? is like the Emoji movie is like a movie about the emojis on your phone. And the main character is meh. Right. Like that's the character. His whole <laughs> I do life enjoy is that emoji. Yeah. And like this is that what that is. Right. Like most Americans, even Catholic ones, Republicans or Democrats could care less about the pope or what he thinks about any you know policy issue. Secondly, is like, that totally true? I feel like he gets a pretty good crowd. He's got a pretty big flock. I yeah. mean, you know, if he's saying, you know, regardless of what pope it is, if they're talking about certain social issues, Republicans like him. If they're talking about immigration, Democrats like him. But it's not like a uniform agreement that, oh, we're Catholic. So regardless of our political beliefs, we're going to we're going to agree with the pope on this climate change issue. And the second piece of it is, look, like these groups are not working together. Like investment, major institutional investors and oil companies are not working together to address climate. If anything, they're working against each other. A lot of these institutional investments firms are looking at you know environmentally and socially responsible investments. They're pushing shareholder resolutions that account uh, that force larger companies to account for their climate exposure. And larger companies are pushing back both through the regular you know proxy battles, but then also by funding policy groups who you know talk that, talk about how this is not appropriate and shouldn't be happening. So. 
nothing about this to me signals that like people are working together to, to get something done. So, you know, meh. <laughs> or just straight up you call BS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure, it's a press release, I think. Interesting. I mean, I think what's kind of lost here is that not all the oil companies at this meeting are equally addressing climate change. Like Exxon released a, a statement about this this dialogue, but arguably they've done far, far less, not even arguably, they just have done far less on clean tech investments than, say, BP, Shell, and Total, and some of the other European oil majors. So even among this group, it's not like they're all taking it uh, as seriously as their peers. Well, and what's to agree upon? Like, no one is stopping oil companies from greening their operations. They don't need a rule change. They don't need help. They can do it if they want to. If they wanted to do it, they'd do it. They wouldn't go talk about it with the Pope. Well, they're just there to get some goodwill and a blessing, perhaps. And a cannoli. All right. Well, speaking of oil, we're now transitioning to our main segment of the show, oil prices, and what it ultimately means for consumers at the pump. This is always a political hot-button issue, never seems to go away. Recently, the tables kind of turned as Democrats took this up as their issue, blaming Republicans for increasing gas prices, which is something President Obama's been charged with in the past. So we had Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer at a press conference in front of an Exxon station calling out Trump's, quote, reckless decision to pull out of the Iran deal and how that led to higher oil prices. And he specifically says that higher oil prices are translating to higher gas prices, which disproportionately hurt middle and lower income people. The response from Republicans and people in the conservative media has been, hey, Democrats, why are you suddenly taking issue with uh, higher prices for gasoline for the working class and poor when you're the ones that are okay with putting in place cap and trade and putting gas taxes in place, which raises the price of gasoline? Shane, I'm sure you'd love to detail for us why Republicans uh, think Democrat talking points on this are a little hypocritical. Uh, go for it. Yeah, I mean, this is just stupid. I read a good headline the other day that said, you know, Chuck Schumer's comments prove that Democrats are out of ideas. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, you've got a situation where he is right, right, that withdrawal from the Iran deal created some instability in global oil markets and, and prices went up. I don't think there's any debating that. Um, higher oil prices typically lead to higher gas prices at some point in the, the supply chain. What is confusing to me is that Republicans have for decades argued that if you increase the global supply of oil, you will decrease gas prices. And Democrats have said that's not the solution. There are other solutions to energy issues. Producing more fossil fuels is not the solution. So now, all of a sudden, not only is Chuck Schumer saying, yes, we should be producing more oil, we should be drilling more and using fossil fuels more. He's also saying we should be producing that oil in Iran, not in the United States, which is just insane to me to, to say that. We don't support more drilling here in America. We don't support more uh, American oil exports. We do support more Iranian production exports and financing. And, um, and we're going to campaign on that. So good luck, I guess. This issue, you know, people always ask me, do I miss being uh, in government? And dealing with the politics of gasoline <laughs> were some of my worst experiences because it's really difficult it's a very complicated issue. Shane was saying this is a global commodity and it's a supply and demand issue. But when voters go to the pump and if their prices go up big time and it cuts into their discretionary income, they tend to punish uh, the politicians in charge for that. To Shane's point, uh, this is so hypocritical because Shane talked about supply, right? That's true. Supply does affect the price of gasoline. And when Obama was president, we increase supply of the production of oil 
that helped you know address that problem. Which wait, Shane so, so did, did not wait, wait, wait. Shane did not address the demand side. Right, it is supply and demand, and on demand, we passed the fuel economy standards, which made vehicles more energy efficient and makes them it, it reduces demand. So we had a supply strategy and a demand strategy, and now Trump is rolling back those standards. So he is going to be impacting the price of gasoline and making it higher. This is a fair argument so, that the Democrats are making. So look, look, I'm going to let I'm going to let the supply thing pass because you know supply on federally controlled lands went down. But let's let that go. Let's talk about the demand side because I think you're making a smart point. And then my question to you is. Why is Chuck Schumer standing in front of an Exxon station talking about Iran when he could be standing in Detroit talking about, you know, auto efficiency rules? Your your point is a good one. He didn't make that point. He made the wrong one. Well, I think the point is how much influence does the president have on gasoline prices? And the reason it's such a very tough, little, right? It's a tough political issue because once you start talking about global commodity, most voters don't get into that. They're not thinking about that when they go to the pump. They're just like, my prices are high and they're they're, they're just going to punish a politician. So you're right. The president doesn't normally have that much influence. But in this case, his policies against Iran and his policies on CAFE are directly impacting those prices. And and sure, if, if, if Chuck Schumer wants to make that point, I'd be glad to hear it. But that's not the point he made. And, and I just don't get how allowing Iran to produce and export oil is good for the American consumer or America generally. I think that was maybe a symptom of withdrawing from the Iran deal. You have to also remember that Democrats just don't support withdrawing from the Iran deal for all kinds of reasons. I think this, this is was one of the one consequences of them. And for diplomatic reasons to be taken seriously on the national stage, obviously for our security, a lot of people believe that we just made ourselves a lot less safe by withdrawing from this nuclear weapons agreement. I think that's the core issue. Yeah, I mean, you're having a foreign policy discussion, which we could do sometime. But from an energy perspective, it's just not a legitimate campaign talking point. But again, if he runs with it, great. Like Politically, it's just like, we're on the offensive. Shane is like being very defensive here. So that's, we've got the high ground on this issue right now. That was the look, position I used to be in, and it was very uncomfortable. Here's, here's my advice to Democrats. Talk about Iran and campaign in Texas. <laughs> do those things, and you're going to make me a happy man in November. So awesome. I mean, yeah, we should note what gas prices are right now. The national average is around two dollars and ninety five cents. A year ago this time, it was around two dollars and thirty eight cents. You know, driving on our way to recording today along the PCH, it's three dollars and ninety cents. That's California for you. Um, which And they usually go up in the summer. So, you know, and, and we have the elections coming up right after the summer. So this will be an issue in the midterms. Yeah, which is interesting to me because as soon as gas prices go down a tiny bit, consumers buy SUVs. They literally are okay paying the same amount, if not more, for gasoline by buying a less fuel-efficient car by that small indicator, even though they could end up paying more in the long run. Again, not even for any policy reason, but purely market-driven ones, which... For me, the logic isn't totally there. People are very frustrated when their bill goes up, but it's not like they're trying to mitigate it, really. they It's you know, a very short-sighted decision because right. that's part of the reason that the automakers went bankrupt and we had to bail them out. And you see what these other countries are doing. They're not you know, investing in big gas-guzzling SUVs. They're going into electric vehicles in China. And we're in danger of losing that leadership. But but as we're going to talk about in a minute, I think you're both right that it's a salient campaign issue because, you know, for the last two years, I have one of those big SUVs and I go to the gas station. I don't even pay attention. I just like text or whatever while it fills up. I don't think about it at all. Lately, I'm like, you know, $75. Are you kidding me? 
that's like a night out with my wife. Like it, it is an issue when gas prices go up. It's a personal sort of visceral, emotional issue that, that impacts voters, especially for low income you know, folks that you mentioned, Julia, I mean, this is really, you know, it it affects them acutely. You're right. It definitely does. Um, What's interesting is the prices aren't as high as they could be. We, you know, during the Obama administration, prices got up to $4 a gallon. Right now they're $2.95. I was listening to some news stories and it was folks who go on RV vacations and they were saying, yeah, we noticed it a little bit, but maybe we won't do the cross country trip, but they weren't exactly up in arms. So I wonder if the prices are quite high enough that it will be that much of a voting issue. I don't I don't know that it will outside of California. And I'm psyched to talk about that in a minute. But but keep in mind, too, what is the message here? What is Chuck Schumer's message? We need to increase supply. If that's what Democrats are campaigning on, then great. Like they're going to work quite well with Republicans if and when they get elected. I think the broader message is President Trump doesn't know what he's doing and it has consequences on you on your pocketbook every day, including when you go to the pump. And that's why we need to vote against Republicans. So the gas issue is not coming up for the first time. And I know you guys were both in D.C. on opposite sides of the issue uh, in 2011, 2012, when Obama was in office and Republicans used gas prices as a reason to not vote for him. At the time, gas prices were almost $4 a gallon, up from $1.85 from the month he took office. Brandon, what was that like from your perspective? It was a painful political issue to deal with. So the history is in 2008, Steve Chu, before he was the energy secretary, said that we needed to have $9 a gallon gasoline uh, prices like the Europeans did. Uh, And so when those prices went up in 2011 and 2012, Fox News and the Republicans would just bring out that quote every single time. Why did he say that, though? So what was the context then? Because he thought it would help with climate. He thought, you know, that will uh, drive us towards alternative vehicles and, um, you know, help us get help us deal with climate change. Right, which is probably accurate if but not popular (laughs) not politically popular right uh and and then it came up in a in the presidential debate so a a voter asked you know Mitt Romney and President Obama during you know the debate is when everyone's watching tens of millions of people right and so it came up where they used the quote that Chu had said and asked Obama if he agreed with it so they were this was a very hot topic and then there was a congressional testimony that Chu had where he was asked if he thought it was his job to lower gasoline prices. And Secretary Chu, when he rejected the premise of a question, he just would say no. And then he would answer it the way that he wanted. Just so, like as a, a placeholder. Yes, it's like a placeholder. And so, but they took that clip, the Republicans took that that clip and put it all over Fox News and just beat us uh, to death with it. And it was it's a tough issue. And now they may be on the other side of that. Yeah, I mean, look, that, that was a gift from God if you were a Republican on Capitol Hill or anywhere else, because... As we talk just about, just not the current pope because he, he would not be cool with that. He, he would not. He <laughs> would not be cool with that. But I mean, if you if you look at like the last segment, right? We talked about how it's always really hard to tie gas pre- uh, gas prices to a president. It, it's a it's a hard political bridge to gap to help people understand. So what we knew was that oil production on federal lands was down. I mean, that was definitively true. Gas prices were up. What we couldn't prove is that that was the reason it was happening, and so. You really can't prove that until the secretary of energy says, yes, I want gas prices higher and I'm intentionally doing it. That was like, oh, my gosh, we don't even have to say Obama's doing these things in a nefarious way. 
We can say it is the stated policy of the Obama White House to increase your gas prices. And here are all the things that they're doing that's making that happen. Now, you know, after talking to Brandon on multiple occasions, I understand that was not their policy, but who cares? Right. It was a great campaign slogan and and it worked. You know, we were explaining. And once you're explaining, you're in a defensive political posture. And that is difficult. And this is where it's relevant to today because the Republicans may be in that defensive posture where they're explaining on this issue. How so? Well, because when you start talking about these answers, like it's a global commodity, you know, and uh, voters just don't care. (laughs) They just want lower gasoline prices. And if you're trying to explain, you know, your answer to that, you're probably losing. Well, the California Democrats are going to have to explain their answer to that because they intentionally raise the gas price. That's correct. So let's go to California. Last year, the state passed an increase to the gas tax of roughly 12 cents per gallon. This has been a political hot potato. Governor Jerry Brown has come out saying this is totally necessary. They hadn't raised the gas tax in some 23 years, and it has resulted in um, a backlog of about $130 billion in repairs and road replacements that are needed throughout the state. And he's making the point that this tax increase addresses that. This has become a major campaign issue for Republicans in California who are building up support to try and repeal it, possibly through a ballot measure or maybe some other policy change. So, Shane, you are in touch probably with the California Republicans here. Uh, are they getting traction with this? What is the view around, you know, campaigning on the California gas tax? Yeah, so this is a big deal. And I think probably, you know, for a secondary reason, not the reason that most people think about. I mean, Brandon's probably thinking exactly what I'm thinking right now. But it's not about, you know, you should be angry. (laughs) More beer. I was thinking about the $75 you mentioned you have to fill up your car. And in my $7,000 Nissan Leaf, I just drive right past that gas station and don't even think about it. Well, then then maybe I'm the only one thinking about this. But, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, but 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 seriously, it's I don't think the idea is that, hey, Republicans are super angry about this gas tax. Let's throw the bums out and we're going to take over California. It's a turnout operation. You now have a ballot initiative on election day that repeals the gas tax. So you're basically saying to anyone who wants to save 12 cents a gallon in perpetuity, show up and vote. Well, those people are Republicans. So it's not about the policy as much as it's about driving turnout in what could be a very tight election year. There was a recent poll put out by the LA Times and USC uh, Dornsife that talks about 51% of registered voters in the state uh, being against the higher gas tax. 38% of registered voters were for keeping the higher ga- gas tax. Um, and 9% hadn't heard enough and 2% said they uh, wouldn't vote on the measure one way or the other. So that obviously leans in the Republicans' favor. Sounds like a majority of Californians you know, are against the gas tax. I guess the thing I wonder, though, is like, sure, you're against a gas tax. Like, no one likes higher taxes on things. It's about whether ultimately this is better for society. And to me, that's the sign of a good policymaker that can get people to do things they don't always want to do because there is a need, like investing in roads and bridges. And so you get you know, the political will up to put those in place. So I think, of course, when you go to the public, people are like, yeah, sure, don't love that. But I just feel like that's part of governing, that like you you have to pass policies to get the result that you want, like like investments in infrastructure. 
people don't connect it, and I actually want to hear from Brandon on this, because as you'll remember, after the Stimulus Act or whatever it was called, the Recovery Act, they put big signs outside of projects and be like, hey, this project is complement of the Recovery Act. And they did that because they knew that no one gets it, no one follows it, no one knows, and they wanted people to know. So they felt like the money was being well spent. But the question is, you know you're paying 12 cents at the pump. You don't actually know what that's doing. I don't think there's a play there, but what do you think, Brandon? Do you think it was helpful with the Recovery Act? Um, or do you think they needed those signs because people didn't get it? We definitely needed those signs because people didn't get it. And they still didn't even get it with the signs. Like, I think President Obama still doesn't get the credit he deserves for saving the economy and making long-term investments in things like clean energy. And some of those investments were, again, to get us off of uh, oil. I mean, we made investments in electric vehicles and into uh, batteries for electric vehicles so that we can truly become energy independent. If we want to, you know, stop messing around in the Middle East and be dependent on them for, you know, that resource, we can do that. And and moving towards electrification would do it. Yeah, I think electrification is a, is a good discussion point. And I think there's probably a ton to kick around there. But like, politically speaking, have you ever heard someone say, Hey, vote for me. I raised your gas tax to, so that that guy could take the metro. Like that that just that's not salient, right? But it's crazy to me. Like that's what being in a society is. I don't know. I'm the Canadian in the room here where like it's to me that's part of like what living in a community is all about. Yeah, you invest in common good. But you know, I'm just the hippie over here. So well, what can I say? You know, one of the main parts of the 2008 primary when Barack Obama was running against Hillary, we won Indiana. The gas tax question came up there and Obama gave a very honest answer. He was just like, you know, politicians will tell you that we don't need to raise it or, you know, that we don't need it. Um, But we have to fund infrastructure projects. And so, you know, in dealing with it in an honest and authentic way really helped him uh, in that primary. The thing is, we need this leadership, I think, at the federal level. And this isn't really coming from me. This is coming from covering transportation when I was living in D.C. back in, I guess, 2011, 2012, where they are passing a big highway infrastructure bill. And lawmakers on both sides of the aisle acknowledged that they needed to raise the federal gas tax. No one has the cojones to do it. Yeah, Ray LaHood, you know, from the Department of Transportation, he was the secretary there. He was our Republican that we had in the cabinet. Like, there was discussions about that. For sure. And, like, there's a massive shortage of funding in the, the Highway Trust Fund now. We know that our roads are crumbling. And... We don't have a solution for it to me. Like that seems, again, like good policymaking to step up and, and put that in place. But of course, you guys, can, I'm sure, can attest. And Shane, you're on Capitol Hill. No one, no one will do that. Well, no. And you can see, look, there's circular reasoning here. We just had a conversation about how Chuck Schumer is planting the Democratic flag on Republicans or raising gas prices. Then how can you, you know, sanely go back and say, and, oh, and then also I'm going to add a tax to your gas. Like you can't campaign against raising prices of gasoline and then propose raising the price of gasoline yourself. So there's just no political uh, entree to this. I think you could then that there's a distinction between raising a gas price that is as a result of like market dynamics that are out of your control and that having negative unexpected consequences versus, you know, building a campaign and public awareness campaign around doing something intentional to raise your your tax to result in XYZ. And of course, that needs to be done in a responsible way. But those to me should be different conversations. They are different. One of them directly raises the price of gas and one of them doesn't. So it's different, but not in the way you're projecting. I mean, Brandon fell victim to discussions about a secretary of energy who talked about intentionally raising gas prices. Believe me, the messaging was not what you think it would be. It was not helpful, was it, Brandon? It was uh, some of my most difficult moments in the government was dealing with that. 
which I totally get. I'm just wondering if the conversation could change. I mean, probably not. But um, again, I think there's a whole argument to be made around less wear and tear on your vehicles when you invest in roads, access to free or cheap public transit, which is a benefit disproportionately to lower and middle income people. Um, and of course, the pollution benefits of you know reducing the amount of uh, gasoline that's used. Um, but again, those are harder argu- arguments to sell, and maybe it'll take a ton of signs to, to get that it's to resonate. It's a personal issue for me. When I lived in D.C. for 15 years, I didn't have a car. I took the metro because we had a great subway system there, so gas prices didn't affect me. I came to California. I bought an electric vehicle for $7,500, and like it doesn't affect me, and I want everybody to have access to those same options. Yeah, from, from a policy perspective and a practical perspective, I don't really take issue with any of this. I think you know, in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. There was that time when the Obama administration said, hey, make sure your tires are fully inflated because you'll get better gas mileage. That's definitively true. I mean, that, that is a helpful tip. But the way it was messaged as this guy won't let us drill for oil, but we're supposed to put air on our tires. Thanks, President Obama. I mean, you can't have these in-depth policy discussions on the campaign trail. So if you're talking about what to do after you get elected, sure. If you're talking about what happens in November, you can't start explaining to people that them paying more is a good idea. And this is the point in our show where we hear from our listeners. This is our segment, Constituent Services. And today we're hearing from Rebecca Schenkner, who is the head of transit policy funding and planning at LADOT. She tweeted us about the three major pieces of EV policy that have been passed in um, recent days, one of them being in New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo announced $250 million in electric vehicle um, expansion initiatives. We also had New Jersey, where the Public Service Enterprise Group, a utility, announced a plan to invest $300 million in building smart electric vehicle infrastructure, although that hasn't quite been approved yet. And then there's California, where the California Public Utilities Commission approved more than $750 million in transportation electrification projects for the state's three largest utilities. This is a huge historic move. Utilities weren't even allowed to own EV charging infrastructure in the past in the state, and now they're making huge investments in it. Southern California Edison was the biggest recipient of funding uh, permissions with $343 million to build thousands of of vehicle chargers. We've been talking about gas prices. Will that entire debate be moot because we're all going to be driving electric soon enough? I don't think we're going to, you know, transition that quickly. I'm a huge fan of electric. I think what's so cool about this is these are the types of thoughtful policies that get us where we want to go, right? They don't artificially punish anyone. They don't nationalize part of our electric grid. It basically incentivizes utilities to do something that they already want to do to earn a return doing it and to provide alternative means of, of lower emissions transportation. So, you know, some will say, well, you can't pick and choose because any, you know, electrification hurts oil markets, oil and gasoline markets. And I don't think that's true. I think there's just plenty of export opportunities. Uh, I read a smart read this morning about how the U.S. could really be impactful with our excess oil and gas in Asia. And that helps out with some of the Iran issues we're having. So I think this is just the kind of policy that all around is good energy policy. And um, they're doing it the right way. They're allowing private actors to build out smart infrastructure. That was such a reasonable response. You drive this big honking SUV, which you, you proudly own. And I thought you'd be like, hell no, we're never moving away from you know gas. I think this can be a unifying issue after the elections. This is something that I hope Democrats and Republicans can get together on because if we truly want energy independence and that would be good for everybody, this is the way to go for it. And I'm excited to see the progress that we're making on it because one of the keys to, you know, 
the accelerating deployment of electric vehicles is to have the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure out there. And so this is a meaningful step that has been taking place this week. And now we're at the end of our show and we're going to wrap up with our segment, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where each of our co-hosts has to come up with something they found redeeming about the opposing political party. Who wants to go first? Well, I'll go because I'm excited to share mine. Um, Usually I have sort of a half-baked compliment or a backhanded compliment, but today I have a real one. That's Um, nice of you, Shane. Yeah. You know, as you guys know, and our listeners may know, I love open spaces, love national parks, um, love that kind of stuff, exposure uh, to public lands. And so there was a rumor going around, I'm not sure how true it is, that the Department of Interior is going to end what's called the Every Kid in a Park program. And this program basically allows fourth graders to visit any national park for free. And the idea is to educate children when they're young about the value of public lands. Um, They may end it. And Senator Heinrich, who is a Democratic senator from New Mexico, introduced a bill called the Every Kid Outdoors Act, which would basically codify this program and give fourth graders nationwide uh, free access to national parks and other public lands that are accessible to the public. So thank you, Senator Heinrich. And I, I just think that you can talk about environmentalism, you can talk about policy, you can talk about the future, but just exposing children to our national treasures will do more than any policy debate will. Well, they won't exist much longer because they'll be turned into oil fields. Well, see, now, you know, I But the gas nice prices will be and... lower, so that's a positive. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Brandon, what do you got? Sticking with uh, a Western state, uh, Utah, which is, you know, very Republican, the home of Mitt Romney right now. They have a Republican state legislature and a Republican governor, and they work together to recently pass a resolution on climate where they acknowledge that the climate is changing and we need to have a responsible stewardship of our natural resources. So it's a pretty low bar with Republicans on climate change, but at least this is a meaningful step that they're acknowledging that it's happening and hopefully we can take the conversation from there to how do we address it and what are the right policies to solve this. You address it by shoring up nuclear plants. Arguably. Yes. (laughs) Oh, so you agree with the Trump administration memo that leaked. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha journalism. (laughs) I'm just messing with you. That is our show for today. Again, I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media, joined by Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Thank you so much for listening and tune back in soon. In 2017, uh, the state passed a gas tax um, that was roughly 12 cents increase per gallon, going from 29.7 cents up to 41.7 cents per gallon. That would be exactly 12 cents. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just reading and I don't really think of how like it sounds. It's a lot of math. I know. (laughs) I hate you. Carry the two. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't lying. For our science and engineering listeners. For our STEM listeners. Yeah. <laughs>